The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. This is found on page 823 if you're using the Bibles in front of you. Would you stand as I read from God's word? And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I would encourage you to keep your copy of Scripture open, Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. If you remember, we've talked several times now that this big middle chunk of Luke's gospel is really Luke helping us understand what do the twin realities of who Jesus is as the Savior who came to accomplish salvation And the end of Luke's gospel, which is all about how he did accomplish that salvation. What does this mean for us in uh, our everyday life, um, in our pursuit of Jesus as everyday disciples? And we've said Luke really chops up this middle portion of Luke into four different themes. And we're on the back end of this third theme, this idea about the number, the identity of the Savior's people. Who are they? What does salvation look like? What what kind of character traits, spiritual character traits, identify God's people? Luke is wrapping up this third theme today, and he's going to do so with a sermon title that I'm giving for these verses today called Repentance is the Way. Repentance is the Way. This repentance theme that has been showing itself since Luke 15 all the way through 16 is now going to find its culminating thought on the words of Jesus for Jesus' people. If you notice in verse 1, if you look in your copy of Scripture, Jesus is done talking to the Pharisees and he's now returning his attention back to his disciples. That's what Luke says in verse 1. And Jesus is now going to talk to them about how repentance is the way. If you want to summarize verses 1 through 10 this morning in a short and sweet sentence, it could be this, that the Savior's people are marked by the give and take of ongoing repentance. Jesus' people, the lost and founders, the once was blind but now I seers. This is who we are as Jesus' people. Well, what does this mean for us in regards to repentance? And Jesus is going to say there's this give and take. Not only are we pursuing continual repentance ourselves, but we're actually called to link arms with a Jesus family and to help one another pursue Jesus. This is the kind of gospel culture that gospel doctrine creates, the ongoing, together, linked arms pursuit of the Lord Jesus ongoing repentance. So I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive into the text and see what King Jesus has for us this morning. Amen? So let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for those who are here in front. Lord, together we come to you with a collective need. And that collective need is to hear from you clearly. 
That collective need to borrow language from Luke 24 is for you to open our eyes to see you. It's the collective need for you to open our minds to understand the scripture before us. Really, it's the collective need for you to magnify in our hearts and our minds just how needy, weak, and dependent we are upon you. That's where the life of blessing is found. Not in self-reliant strength, but in Christ-reliant weakness. And so, King Jesus, would you lead us in this way today to see what it is you call for of your followers and what it looks like for us to walk in one another's lives, magnifying and upholding the gospel in one another's lives. But leading us forward is just again an ever-deepening Christ-reliant weakness, recognizing for us to be able to do this, we need you. We never move beyond our need of you. So King Jesus, would you assist me to proclaim the word today in such a way that we all get wet with the water of God's word. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray. Amen. This is the way. If you are hearing that phrase through the voice of Pedro Pascal behind a Beskar Mandalorian mask, then that means you've probably been sucked into the cowboy space western that is Disney's The Mandalorian. Star Wars fans here? Yay, nay? A handful of us here? All right. So that was an overly pertinent illustration for the half of you. You're like, I'm clueless, and that was a lame illustration. Um, but if you know from watching that show several seasons in, this kind of thing, the people of Mandalore are a unique kind of people. They're a warlike kind of people, but they actually approach their way of life in a very religious kind of language. If you listen to just the way the writers are talking and helping the characters to talk, uh, the people of Mandalore are a religious people, and their way of life is really a very religious life. And so when they use this phrase with one another, this is the way, what they're talking about is to walk in the way, what they're reminding one another is that there's a right way to walk in line with what we, the Mandalorian people, say we believe. So what they're just saying is the gap between the Mandalore way and the way we go and live our life, that gap is supposed to be small to non-existent. Like all of that is packed into that little consistent phrase reminder that gets tossed around on that show when they look at one another and say, this is the way. Now, taking that idea, turning to Luke chapter 17, what we find is a similar idea here before us in the words of Jesus. But instead of this is the way, Jesus is teaching us that repentance is the way. Repentance is the way. Just as if Mandalorians have a way of walking where what they believe and how they behave, that gap is to be small. Jesus is turning back to his disciples and saying, remember how all this repentance language we've been talking about is before us. Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the true picture of repentance that's found. Heaven rejoicing when one lost sinner repents. How we can walk and choose not to walk in repentance. We saw that in 16. We see where repentance leads. It's the highway that leads us to hell. If we remain hardened in unrepentance, repentance is firing off everywhere. And now you're actually going to see this language pop up specifically in verses 3 and 4. And Jesus, though, isn't talking to Pharisees, the religious leaders who are far from him. He's actually talking to those who are like, like we're, we're tracking with you, Jesus. Like we're striving to enter through the narrow door when that cat back in Luke 13 said, are there going to be few that are saved? And Jesus said, you need to make sure that you are saved. Are you striving to enter in through the narrow door? In other words, are you one who has repented, turned from sin, and turned to Christ in salvation? But there's also more that you need to know about this repentance idea, and that's really what verses 1 through 10 and Luke 17 are about. So 
when you look at these first 10 verses of Luke 17, what these verses, these words of Jesus are, they are the last words in this third discipleship theme that goes all the way back to Luke 13, verse 22. You remember that in response to that very specific question, someone asked Jesus, will those who are saved be few? Jesus began to explain, here's how you need to think about whether you are saved. What are the identities, the attributes, the characteristics that mark out the Savior's people? And then he began to talk, and Luke has strung together several pieces of evidence of what this looks like. His people, the Savior's people, are sinners who strive to enter through the narrow door of Jesus for salvation. They are those who respond to the Savior's invitation to wholehearted followership. They are repentance sinners, once lost, now found, once blind, but now see. But notice that in this text... Specifically, when you get to verses 3 and 4, Jesus isn't, saying that or Jesus isn't saying that repentance is just merely the way to eternal life. Boom, repentance is done. For all you checklist people out there, right, you have on your follow Jesus checklist in, in your mind, there's a box that just says repent and believe. Well, I did that 20-something years ago. Check, and then you take repentance, and you go boom, and you just boot it out the door, and then dust off your hands like that's the last thing I need to worry about with repentance. Repentance isn't merely the way to eternal life, as though somehow we graduate beyond the need to repent once we are saved. No, says Jesus, repentance is the way of everyday life for everyday disciples. You never graduate beyond your need to repent and pursue Jesus. We enter in through the Jesus door through that initial act of repenting and believing. That's the Luke 13 strive to enter through the narrow door of me, says Jesus, for salvation. But then as we continue to grow and continue to mature, the way forward is repentance and faith. The Spirit revealing, man, I've got room to grow. I'm going to turn from self-trust and turn to Jesus. Man, this area of my heart, I'm clinging to King me here. I don't want King Jesus. The Holy Spirit reveals that. And so it's like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to turn from that, repent, and I'm going to run to Jesus. In other words, this idea of sanctification, that's your $5 church word for the day. Sanctification just means growing to look more like Jesus. That's the idea behind sanctification. Sanctification looks like, according to this text, repentance and faith. Continuing to grow and trust more, cling to Jesus as we continue to turn from sin. Repentance is the way of everyday life for everyday disciples. So, while it is true that repentance and faith are the two wings upon which a person flies to heaven, so to speak, it's also true that repentance and faith are to be the ever-deepening, ongoing, give-and-take habit of my everyday life. And I say give-and-take because you're going to see here in verses 1 and 2, it's not only the ongoing habit of me, but it's the give-and-take to where there's just times in my life where I don't see me clearly. You understand what I'm saying? Have you ever been in that place before, like where you're walking the Jesus walk and you're just self-justifying maybe this area of sin in your life and you just can't see it. You just don't know why, but like it's just part and parcel of our walk. Has anyone ever been there before? And then a Jesus follower who loves you and would lay down their life for you comes alongside you and says, hey, this thing in your life, have you ever considered how that robs glory from Jesus and doesn't give glory to Jesus or in some, some measure like that? Anyone ever been on the receiving end of that kind of conversation? I have, and you're going to hear about it here in a little bit. And that person didn't come to you with, like, I'm superior, you're inferior, and they didn't, like, lay a load of bricks on you and annihilate you and go nuclear and make you feel... Like, because of their pursuit of Jesus, 
they had tasted and seen how sweet the gospel is. And, oh, you've tasted and seen how sweet the gospel is. Let us help one another continue to grow and taste how sweet the gospel is. And Jesus says that's the give and take of a Jesus family. That's the beautiful give and take of a gospel culture among a Jesus family when gospel doctrine is sinking down its roots deep into the hearts and lives of its people. According to Jesus, this is the way. Now, look at verse 1. Notice that Jesus has turned his attention back to his disciples. We've said that a couple times. But cast your eye down to verse 3. Look at verse 3 real quick. In verse 3, Jesus gives these disciples, his disciples, a command. And this command, in my opinion, connects verses 1 through 10 together. And what's that command there in verse 3? Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Some of your translations might say, watch yourself. Or take care to be on guard. That's the kind of idea that's wrapped up in this command from Jesus. Don't go take a nap. Adopt this kind of on-guardedness, posture, attitude of heart, attitude of mind. And my argument this morning is that this first phrase of verse 3, pay attention to yourself, is actually the key that connects together these what seem like random little stories, right? There's the repent kind of stuff, and there's like the increase my faith kind of thing, and then there's this random parable about servants just doing their duty, and it's like, how, how do these all connect together? I think they connect together through the magic key of that command, verse 3, pay attention to yourself. So, first point, point number one is this, pay attention, take care to help others repent. Pay attention to take care to help others repent. Repent. This is verses 1 through 4, Luke 17. So, verse 1. Notice what's on the lips of Jesus. Temptations to sin are sure to come, he says. But woe to the one through whom they come. Actually, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So again, in verse 3, Jesus is going to say, pay attention, and then he's going to lay out a way that helps fellow Jesus followers to pursue repentance, not only in their own lives, but in the lives of others. But notice before he gets there, Jesus first identifies a way to not help others repent, and that's to adopt a casual approach to sin. So if Jesus is saying, pay attention, the call is on you to help walk with others, to pursue repentance, and ultimately we're talking about pursuing Jesus in our life, there is a way to not be helpful, I think Jesus is arguing in verses 1 and 2, and that is to think of this idea of sin, to think of this idea of my own personal ongoing repentance and go, casual approach, don't care, not a big deal, sin, everyone's doing it, do we have to be really worked up, is this a serious thing, I don't think it is, and so you take a low view, casual approach to sin. I think that's what Jesus is helping us see here. There is a way to not help others pursue repentance, and that's to adopt a casual approach to sin. So the idea is that Jesus' followers need to pay attention And they need to pay attention to make sure they're taking sin seriously. All of us have been in areas in our life before, right, where we sort of get rocked to sleep by the monotony of life. You know what I mean by that? Just the normal ebb and flow, rinse and repeat, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's just like the same old thing. And we lose the guard yourself, pay attention to yourself mentality. And sin, like a darkness, just begins to to creep in on the edges, work its way forward, comes out of the dark corners of the heart, and the next thing you know, this one thing that you are believing, this one thing that you are saying, this one way that you are acting... You just have accepted as commonplace in your life where whatever, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, you would have said there's no way that thing would ever be commonplace in my life, this thing being sin. But then all of a sudden, there it is. 
question is, how does that happen in our lives? I think the implicit idea here in verses 1 and 2 is we just start to approach sin casually. If sin is like a viper that is poisonous and is designed to strike, sink in fangs, pump in venom, and kill, it would be insane if I walked up here this morning with a viper in my hands, coddling it and stroking it, and like, ooh, sweet viper, I love you, kissing the... You guys would be like, that man has lost his mind. You don't coddle a viper, you kill a viper. Sin is a viper. But some of us are coddling the viper. And the question is, how do we just sort of casually slip into to that place? Now, it's important to say that in a fallen Genesis 3 world, sin is unavoidable. Like, right, we live in a world that is not designed to be this way. Everything seems normal, but actually in the grand redemptive story of salvation, our life experience is horribly abnormal. Our life is not meant to be this way. We're actually supposed to be living like Genesis 1 and 2 and like we will be living in Revelation 21 and 22 when we get back to the garden. Amen? It's like, sign me up. I'm moving. We're moving there. Thank you, Jesus, for accomplishing that. But we look around in the world today. We're like, man, everything seems so normal. And Jesus would actually be like, actually, this is abnormality that we're experiencing in life. And the abnormality that we experience is that in a Genesis Three fallen worlds, like sin is unavoidable. Jesus says it in verse 1. Temptations to sin are sure to come, he says. But notice that Jesus, as he continues to talk, is going to also say to his disciples, while this is true, this is no excuse for you getting entangled in sinning, nor is it an excuse for you to go and involve other peoples in sinning. That's what he's saying. So occasions to be a stumbling block that trip up and lead others to sin, they they come to everyone. But Jesus says there at the end of 1 and into verse 2, but woe to the one through whom they come. Now, to be the one through whom temptations to sin come, that can play itself out in all sorts of ways. All sorts of ways. On one hand, so here, here's just some ways that it could, it could play itself out. On one hand, this could include persecutors who seek to make disciples renounce faith in Jesus, right? That's one way. Someone overtly, decidedly antagonistic to the faith, our fellow Jesus family brothers and sisters throughout the world, many experience this. People say, oh, you love Jesus, I'm going to make your life a living hell. And I will do harm to you. They fall into that category of those through whom these things come. Maybe on a lesser level, it could, this idea from Jesus could point to false teaching by alleged Christian teachers. So someone gets up in the name of Jesus, says X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z is just decidedly unbiblical, but it's being proclaimed as biblical. People begin to believe it and they're led away led astray, led into sin. I think the woe of verse 1 is for someone like that. Or it could refer to those who just deliberately work to lure believers into sin. So you're not like outright persecuting. You're not sitting in the category of just trying to teach false things as truth. But you are there just saying, like, my aim in life is to be a stumbling block and a trip, tripping hazard to Christians, and I'm going to live my life in such a way where my words, my actions are going to try to entice, lure people, Christians specifically, into sin. Now, for some of us here, we look at that and we're like, okay, woe to the one through whom they come. That's sort of obvious. I'm not persecuting anyone. I'm not a false teacher. Like, I don't get up on Monday morning and have on my daily calendar, my planner, entice other believers into gross, immoral sin. Like, that's not on the list. So, like, surely I'm good, right? I think there's another category here to where, on the other hand, we could think about what Jesus is saying 
is that it could also apply to fellow Jesus followers who just simply have adopted a casual approach to sin. And because they have a casual approach to sin, they have a casual approach to repentance. If sin is not big, i.e., if sin is small, then repentance is not going to be big. Repentance is going to be small because why do you need to repent about something that's not that big of a deal? And so for Jesus' family followers, I think Jesus is inviting us here to consider, am I causing others to sin by my casual approach to sin? My casual approach to personal, ongoing, ever-deepening repentance. Perhaps the seriousness of sin has become not so serious in your life. Therefore, ongoing repentance has fallen to the wayside, and now there are words in your life, there are actions in your life, there are thoughts in your life that are unknowingly or maybe knowingly tripping others up and leading others to sin. But so we don't just shrug our shoulders and be like, ah, who cares, you know, no big deal. Jesus, our chief shepherd, comes and shepherds us by doing what shepherds sometimes have to do to the sheep. He goes, and he gives us a verbal eye poke. And that verbal eye poke is verse 2, where he says, you know, if this category could potentially be descriptive of you, it would be better if someone took a giant stone, tied it around your neck, and chucked you out into the sea. Like, that's strong words. (laughs) It's meant to, like, sort of go, bing, and, like, sort of poke you in the eye and go, like, "What's what's he saying here? There's something punchy to the words of Jesus. I think we need to understand this, that when Jesus announces, woe to the one, and then he amplifies, magnifies his point by saying, it's better for this one who is causing others to be tempted into sin, if someone would take a millstone, tie it around their neck, cast into the sea, then that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Little ones is oftentimes a little euphemistic phrase describing believers in the scriptures. What Jesus is doing is he's just simply giving a shock and awe illustration designed to highlight the seriousness of sin. What he's saying is don't approach sin with a casual approach, approach sin with a serious approach. Well, the question is, well, how serious is sin? What's serious enough for Jesus to use a very punchy illustration to try to wake us up from maybe our casual approach? I think it's so serious, sin is so serious, that it would actually be better, says Jesus, for the gruesome death of verse 2 to happen to you than leading someone to sin. If you go into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, sin is so serious, Jesus says, that if your right eye causes you to sin, you should tear it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, you should actually cut it off. It's that kind of serious sin is. Now, it's obvious, like, so if you're sitting here going, okay, Jesus, stone, water, eye gouge, hand, like, these are illustrations, right? It's obvious that Jesus isn't actually prescribing to his disciples here to go out, start tying large stones around people's necks, tossing them into large bodies of water, ripping eyeballs out, and chopping off hands. I hope that's obvious to you, Okay. But what Jesus is prompting in his disciples by using this language is he's prompting us to ask and answer the extremely hard question, am I causing others to sin? Am I causing others to sin? He's causing us, prompting us, leading us to ask, is God's view of sin my view of sin? God's view of sin, my view of sin, or am I assuming that my low view of sin is God's view of sin? I've been following Jesus now for about 23 years. December of 2000 was when I would look back and see how God worked in my life to bring about salvation, where I, Luke 13, entered through the narrow door of Jesus for salvation and eternal life. So I've been following Jesus, what is that, roughly 22, 23 years, something like that. 
for about 10 of those years, I've also been a a pastor. And throughout those 23 years, 10 of those being pastoring that kind of thing, uh, I've, I've been in conversations like this before, people either talking to me as a pastor here at Delta or just, you know, just in the one-on-one relationships with, with others. Someone comes, Pastor John, life is a wreck, things are going horribly, so you begin to ask, how's it going, what's going on? And as you begin to peel back the layers, what you find out is that this person, just had, there's some kind of sin going on in their life, and the consequences of that sin are wreaking havoc, not only for the person individually, but wreaking havoc on others. Their actions have caused others to sin, and all, all, these, all these sorts of things. So as you begin to pull back the layers like an onion, you're peeling them back, you're getting down to it, you, it's not always the case, but you... I have been in situations where you come to the point where this person is like, yes, it's like, I get it. Like, it, they, they didn't come talking in about the question, like, what's going on? Can you help me process it? Because there was a genuine ignorance. Ignorance in the genuine sense, the definition of the word is like, you just don't know something if you're ignorant. So it wasn't like ignorance, like, I, I, I don't see what's going on. Can you help me see, like, there's a measure of, like, yeah, I understand my choice in these decisions when it's the decision of, am I going to pursue King Jesus or am I going to pursue King me? I happily took King Jesus, threw him out the door, and I enthroned King me. And when King me pursued me in that moment, I pursued not Jesus, and pursuing not Jesus was sin. In this decision, in this thought, in this words, in that email, and that thing that I watched, and the thing that I said, and the place that I went, and the way I related to this person, it was sin. Like, I was overtly not bowing down my life to King Jesus in that moment. And what you sort of do is then you begin to ask more questions like, well, so like, where are you at there? Like, are, like where, where do you need help going from there? And what you sort of hope is that someone would come to this kind of place of like, man, like, I'm sinning, I'm leading others to sin, I understand these things, so that can you just help me see how, how to put sin to death, to not coddle the viper, but to kill the viper, that doesn't always happen, because this kind of language then comes out of their mouth. Well, I'm still going to go forward and make this decision, decision that I know is sin, opposed to God, will have an effect on someone else leading them to sin. I'm still going to do it because God is forgiving after all. Or God's a God of love. He still loves me. And so I'm still going to go forward and make this decision. Now, truth is being spoken in this moment. God is forgiving. Thank God. Just look back at Luke 15, if you're like, give me evidence of this, when the father goes ripping down the road to tackle, hug his younger son, who has repented of sin, come confessing that I've sinned before heaven, and before he can even get out, I sinned before you, swallowed up. And the father's love. God is forgiving. Praise God and amen. Amen. God is loving, praise God and amen. But what that person is doing is taking a truth and applying it in such a way where whether they know it or not, what they're trying to do is say, my casual low approach to a sin, I actually think this is God's approach to sin. And so they're using a truth to whitewash something that ought not to be whitewashed, sin, in order to say, if I go forward and do this, and I continue to sin and lead others to sin, I'm just not quite sure God really cares about it all that much. Jesus is here shepherding us as the chief shepherd of our souls to see that is a casual, low, non-serious approach to sin. And my Jesus followers are meant to have the opposite kind of idea. Does this make sense? Okay. So, if all of these things that I've just said are ways to not help others repent, Jesus now goes into verses 3 and 4 and says, here are ways to help others to repent. And he uses two words specifically, rebuke and forgive. Do you see them there in verse 3? Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This is how you are a help to help others repent. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't just take care to always be repenting yourself, but the culture of my Jesus family. Remember, he's talking to disciples. He's talking to brothers and sisters in the household of God because they have strove to enter through the narrow gate. They once were lost. They are now found. Salvation has come to them. They've been adopted into the household of God. They are brothers and sisters with one another. Salvation has come to them. Christ is their older brother. The father is truly their father in this relational sense. Jesus is saying the cultural air that a Jesus family breathes is not only I am going to pursue repentance in an ongoing, ever-deepening way, but I'm going to look left and look right as others are looking left and looking right, saying, y'all, we're in this thing together. And there are some times in my life when I don't see me as clearly as I ought to see me, and I need you to help me to pursue Jesus as I help you to pursue Jesus in areas that you may not always see yourself clearly. In other words, what Jesus is saying in verse 3 is that this is what a life of gospel-informed love looks like in a Jesus family. When he says, if your brother sins, rebuke, if he repents, forgive him, this is what gospel-informed love looks like in a Jesus family. And I say gospel-informed Because the actions of rebuke and forgive are born out of this thought. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I joyfully take responsibility to love and encourage you in your pursuit of Jesus. Rebuke and forgive isn't born out of, well, I've got my act together, how come you don't have your act together? It's not born out of, well, I've arrived. How come you haven't arrived? I'm going to screw you to the sticking post. It's born out of the Matthew 18 kind of idea, like I am a sinner and I know what forgiveness is like. The massive debt that I owed to the Father that I could never repay in a million eternities and then some could never have been repaid, but here comes Christ canceling the debt that stood against me so that I might find forgiveness. And because this is true of me and because you are confessing this is also true of me, then what we do is we mutually, within this this culture of gospel-informed love, we look at one another and say, because of what Jesus has done for me, and this person says, well, because of what Jesus does for me, this person says, I'm going to joyfully take responsibility to help you pursue Jesus. And this person says, well, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to joyfully help you pursue Jesus in this way. This is the kind of goodness and beauty that's being borne out in these verses as it relates to repentance being the way. So notice this, verse 3. Let's give some definitions here because some of you are hearing the word rebuke and you're like, yeah, I'm not tracking. Like, what's going on here? Let's just pick some of these things apart real quick. Verse 3, notice, if your brother sins. Notice the word brother. Jesus isn't saying your job is to leave church on November 5th, 2023 and go into your workplace tomorrow and go nuclear on everybody. If your brother sins. Notice the word brother. This person is a Christian. They're part of the fellow Jesus family. They're a fellow repentant, lost and founder. And it's if he sins. It's not if you look at your fellow brother, fellow sister, and they've just hacked you off because they're wearing a color of t-shirt that day that you really find disagreeable with their outfit. It's not, this person really rubs me wrong, they annoy the tar out of me. I'm going to go rebuke them. No, it's if your brother sins. In that he has genuinely offended the Lord in word or deed. Like, right, you can go, there's Bible chapter and verse. 
where it's thus says the Lord, like the Lord says, do this, don't do this. This is what it looks like to pursue me as a genuine, repentant disciple when this brother, sister, finds themselves out of kilter, out of line with pursuing Jesus in these ways. If they've genuinely offended the Lord in word or deed, then what do you do? You rebuke them. You don't go scream and belittle him. You don't go scorched earth, drop a ton of bricks on him. You don't make a fool out of him. You don't embarrass him. But instead, this is the idea behind the word rebuke. You honor him by being honest. That word in the original language for rebuke. When we hear rebuke, we think go nuclear. The biblical definition of the word rebuke, according to this word, is a unique word in the original language that stitches together this idea of honor and tell someone how it is. Tell them how it really is. Not in the way we think about it. Well, I'm going to go tell Brady how it is. And that, 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 that translates as go nuclear on Brady. That's not, that's not the Bible way. To tell someone how it is is just to be honest with them. And this word rebuke says you be honest with them. That is how you honor them. How do you honor your fellow brother and sister in the Jesus family? You be honest with them. That is wrapped up in this idea of rebuke. So it's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians 6 verse 1. Paul wrote to the Christians in Galatia, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, i.e. sin, you who are spiritual should, notice the phrase, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Then notice a very Jesus-like phrase here, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Paul is basically ripping off Jesus is my argument right here in Galatians 6.1. Notice the gentleness of restoration that is being mentioned here. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is what biblical, Jesus-ordained, gospel-informed rebuke looks like. Gentleness of restoration that comes to a person and says, because of what Jesus has done for me, I'm going to enter into your life where I'm going to ask you a question. Hey, when you're at the meeting and you spoke like this, that seemed really out of whack. Is everything okay? I know you weren't realizing it, but I saw how you talked to your wife the other day after church, and you were going nuclear on her. Is everything all right? That seems out of step with things like Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, 4, things like this. I just don't want you to cause someone else to sin by them going, well, if Pastor John can go nuclear on his wife, then now, you know, 50% of Delta is like, like, we can go nuclear on like, right? Then it's like, no, like, I'm leading, okay? Notice the gentleness of restoration that's mentioned. This is what biblical, Jesus-ordained, gospel, and reformed rebuke looks like. And Jesus says this, if gentle, respectful, interactive correction leads this brother to repent, then forgive him. Just as you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it's important to say that in a gospel community, in a Jesus community, a local church, I don't think this is Jesus saying, now, everybody, go on a witch hunt and root out all the sin in people's lives. That's, that's not what he's saying. This doesn't mean that at community group this week, we're going to see if we can find the devil hiding behind the tree of everyone's life. Like, oh, God, like we're not trying to gotcha around the corner, right? It's just as we're rubbing shoulders, as you're walking in life, when you see a brother, sister, fellow lost and founder in sin, like you can just go like, man, like this is out of step with the gospel according to the word of God. I'm going to love this person enough to come along and not be like, oh, well, you know, like who am I? Or I've got my own issues, these sorts of things. It's no, the mutual give and take. This happened to me about three years in to my leadership here at Delta. Is John Kleinschmidt here, by the way? John Kleinschmidt, No. Okay, good. Then I'm, I was going to say, I did not ask him permission to give this illustration, and I was going to say, I might have my own rebuke and repentance here later for sharing this, but 
maybe since he's here, he doesn't get the opportunity to do that, okay? But it was about three years in to my leadership here at Delta, and I was leading poorly. It wasn't like, it was just my attitudes and some of my actions were not becoming of Jesus. And I remember Klein Schmidt said, hey man, you want to go grab a coffee, caribou, right over here? And I'm like, yeah, sure, let's go do it. And we go over there, and in so many words, he's like, hey man, like in the elder meetings, when you're talking like this, when you're saying this kind of stuff, what do you mean by that? Like, are, are you saying this? And it's like, well, no, like I don't mean that. And he's like, well, I'm telling you, that's the way it's coming across. Like it's leading, it's offensive to these sorts of things. Now in the moment, that was horribly unwanted. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be leading this thing. I'm leading. Like, why don't you get on board, right? Kind of like, right? We, we go there, don't we? Well, who are you, Tom Miller, to come and... But it was just a couple minutes into it, and I praise God because the Spirit has spoke more loudly on that evening. I mean, this has been multiple years, and I still think about it often, the gift that John was that night. To have enough stinking care for my soul and the effect that it could potentially have on those who would feel the effect of my wrong-headed leadership. You guys. If that brother didn't have enough care to come and say, hey, when you do this, do you mean this? Yes, no. Like, I want you to look like Jesus. I want you to lead like Jesus. I want you to leave the aroma of Jesus. And in that moment, it was mildly, and I use that word, mildly unpleasant but I look back on that evening often with extreme thankfulness that a Jesus lover loved me enough to expose something I did not see in my life so that I could love Jesus better my relationship with him did not diminish it strengthened my friendship with him grew harder like concrete. It did not dissolve like ice on a summer sunny day. And I think Jesus is arguing that's what gospel-informed pursuit of one another looks like within the culture of a Jesus family when what we say we believe, that sinners are called to repent and believe, gets worked out on the horizontals and the tangibles and the experientials of life where it's like we can walk into a Jesus family and go, man, I can, like, I can sort of smell Jesus and touch Jesus and hear Jesus and see Jesus among this Jesus family. Jesus says this is a crucial ingredient that's a part of that gospel culture when that gospel culture is rooted in gospel doctrine. You guys tracking? Okay. I know... That verses 1 through 4, we're going to take up like 90% of the sermon. Because some of you are like, this cat's only four verses deep into 10 verses. And it's like, the sermon should be done like five minutes ago. Bro, I, hey, I've it's taken me 10 years, but I can see it in your guys' faces, okay? I know how this thing works. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to simply give you like the 100,000-foot view on verses 5, 6, 7 through 10, okay? And then you guys can go be good Bereans and do your homework at home. So with all that said, I think there's a reason why in verse 5 the apostles, look at verse 5 in your Bible. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I think they're listening to Jesus and going, how in the world are you supposed to live like this? I just want you to notice this, that we are called to pay attention, point number two, because this is a matter of faith. When you hear the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith, and then Jesus says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, I just want you to see, don't, don't approach it with this, that Jesus is saying you need to have great faith versus small faith. Jonathan, like this kind of way of living within the Jesus family takes about 75 faith units, and you're sitting here, your, your checking account of faith units has about 20. So like, it's like, Jesus, like, give me some more, like, give me some more faith unit credits because 75, so Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not increase faith like great, small. It's this idea, Lord, will you just increase my ability to take you at your word? Would you increase my ability to trust that your plan for growth for your people looks like this? Lord Jesus, would you increase in me this settledness 
of heart that knows my great Savior is for me, for us, for you, when he says these things, he's not against us. He's saying these things, I think, so we can go, wow, how do I walk like this? And then Jesus comes alongside you, puts his arms around you and says, you walk like this by leaning and trusting on me and my ability to give you the strength to walk like this, okay? So that's verses 5 and 6. Verses 7 through 10, it's this idea. Pay attention. No fat heads allowed is the way I summarize verses 7 through 10. And I put it that way because of what Jesus says there in verse 10. So just look at verse 10 and we'll wrap it up. Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I think Jesus is helping us to see. Remember, we're at the very, very end of this third theme section. So I think Jesus is saying this. When your eyes are opened and you come to see, I must strive to enter through the narrow door of salvation. And then you strive, you do, you enter through the narrow door of salvation. When you come to the place where you've heard the master's invitation, come to me, all who are weary and heaven laden, I will give you rest. And you've come to Jesus. And when Jesus says, here's this invitation, come to me and you can and will find salvation for your soul. And you heeded the invitation, you come. And Jesus says, well, this is what wholehearted followership of me looks like. I want you to count the cost. And you said, I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to count the cost. I'm going to renounce. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to set Jesus as the priority of my love. And then Luke 15 came along and Jesus is like, well, your life was probably like a lost coin or a lost sheep or a lost son. And you're like, yes, this was me. And then you look around maybe at the Pharisees in your life like these disciples were doing and then their heads begin to go look how we've got this and we figured the Jesus thing out and we're going to go. Jesus is like, slow, slow the roll. If you are going to do what we're so prone to do, which is to get a fat head because you figured it out where others have, have not, no fat heads allowed in the kingdom. In the grand scheme of things, you're just a servant. And the reason why you're a servant is because you've been saved by grace. You didn't earn it. Jesus is the great master, and then what you do in humble amazement is you just go forward walking in the way. And what's the way? Repentance is the way. That's Jesus' word for us, brothers and sisters, from Luke 17, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. Lord Jesus, I ask that by your spirit that you would make these things land and click, that you would take the words spoken today. Maybe there's just a singular truth in there somewhere. Like, in other words, 99.9% .9 of what I've said just needs to sort of circle the drain. Uh, but there is that point one where you, Spirit, are just pressing in on our heart and our mind, and there's some call to response that you are leading us to. Jesus, help us by your strength to walk in obedience to whatever it is you're leading us to do. It's in your name I pray. Amen.